was getting real nervous that he, that he was going to like put that up there. Paul, I was, I was getting real nervous for a second. Like it's one thing to mention it, it's a whole other one to show it back. That was a long time ago. <laughs> right on. The thing, you know, it just shows you your, your past will come back to bite you somehow. But I am. I, I, I love lip sync. Uh, I was a youth pastor for a while, and I, I, there's not a Britney Spears song that I have not covered. Uh, and, Hil- and Hillary Duff was also worked her way in there as well. So, uh, but that's not what we're talking about this morning. Uh, Discovery Church, thank you very much for having me. I am, I'm Cody. I'm pastor at Life Point Church, uh, just right up the road here in Woodland. Uh, but we love you guys. We, we pray for you guys. Our staff prays for you guys regularly. Um, it's a privilege uh, to be here and to share the word of God with you guys. Uh, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, uh, as Pastor Jeff said. And so if you guys would turn there with me, and we'll start in verse 10, and I'm going to pray for us as we begin. Our Father in heaven... It is a privilege, God, to open your word. We know it is by your grace, it is by your provision and sovereignty that we have this word before us today. It is not simply, God, that we would understand it by our own means, but Lord, we recognize that we need you if we are to hear you. We need you if we are to understand who we are to be in response to your word. So we come Father, not knowing, but needy, help us understand. Holy Spirit, come, grant us soft hearts, open minds, that you tell us we need to understand your word. So come and help us. We long to know Jesus more. We long to gather as brothers and sisters around this word to hear our Father speak. And so please help us this morning, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you, you want to experience a really awkward, tense situation? And not, uh, not many people would say yes to that, but I need you to like think about being in an awkward, tense situation uh, as we head into this passage. So here's the situation I want you to picture. Walk up to a full-time pastor or a full-time missionary and ask them this question. What is something that you need right now? What is something that you need right now? And you will immediately feel the tension increase because what goes on in their minds is, man, it'd be great to have a new car because, and so I can stop dumping money into this old one. Or man, it'd be great to have a raise so that I could, times weren't so tight with me and my family. Or simply, I, it would be great to have a vacation, man, that lasted longer than a day or two because I'm tired and I'm beat up. It'd be great to have a break. But you won't hear them say any of these things because those aren't quote unquote spiritual answers. They'll sort through what they think you, you hope that they are going to say back. And this, this awkwardness, this tension, this is the same awkwardness that we will experience in the passage that we're going to look at today in Philippians chapter four. There is a tension in this passage because Paul is going to say, thanks for meeting my needs, but I didn't need you to meet my needs, but thank you for meeting my needs. And it's gonna, he's gonna go back and forth and it's tense. And what we are gonna find out in this text is that God uses concerned churches to meet the needs of content people. 
God uses concerned churches to meet the needs of content people. Now, there's a tension in that statement. Why would content people have, have, require their needs to be met? There's a tension in the statement because there's a tension in this text. What we find throughout this letter of the book of Philippians is that Paul and the Philippian church, they have an incredibly special relationship. You've seen that, right? It's a special friendship, partnership. It's a beautiful one centered on the gospel, existing for the glory of God, and we witness it over and over again in the background of everything Paul says. From the get-go, verse three, chapter one, I thank my God every time I remember you. He loves this church, and it really comes to a climax here in verse 10. We, fit, we find out the thing that happened that has caused such rejoicing in Paul about this from this church. There, there's something has happened. So look with me, if you would, at verse chapter, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes, I rejoiced in, that, in the Lord, that same rejoicing that has been there throughout this letter, that has weaved its way through this entire letter. He says here, I rejoiced in the Lord. Why? I rejoice greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what happened? Well, what we'll find out later in the text is that the Philippian church had sent a gift to, to the Apostle Paul. And what the gift was, we're not sure. It was his meeting his physical needs. So it was most likely clothes, money, perhaps even some of his favorite snacks, maybe a book or something like that. But it was, it was gifts that met his physical needs while he was in jail in Rome. And he says, you guys have always had a concern for me. You guys were always concerned um, and, and praying for me, but you have not been able to demonstrate that to me. You have had no opportunity to show and demonstrate your concern for me. And so some, some scholars think that it was like a, there was a long gap in between the last time Paul even interacted with this church. Some think five to seven years, others as long as 10 years since Paul has interacted personally with this church. And he said, now all of a sudden you have revived, you've been able to demonstrate your concern for me. So why? Why, why couldn't they demonstrate a concern? Why, why, why was there a lack of opportunity? And there's probably a couple of reasons. One is that all of the churches in Macedonia, not just the church at Philippi, were very, very poor. They, they didn't have a lot of stuff. So even if they wanted to meet the needs of Paul, they maybe weren't even able to at particular times. When they hear about a need of Paul, they're like, man, we can't even pull our resources enough to even help him or get them to him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that all the churches in Macedonia, they gave not out of abundance, but out of poverty they were willing to give Paul. But probably the number one reason they were not able to help Paul is that he was all over the place, man. He, he was moving around. He was planting churches, raising up leaders, then moving on to the next place. He was in jail. He was in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was all over the place. But now he's finally staying put. He's in jail, shackled and arrested. It's funny, huh? It's funny how being in prison 
provided the Philippian church the opportunity to serve and provide for Paul, which really brings about this discussion here at the end of this letter. And so we're going to see two sides of this gospel relationship. We're going to see from the perspective of Paul, but we're also going to see from the perspective of the Philippian church. And they have two totally different roles to play in this relationship. So first we'll see it in Paul, who will see the content person, the individual. Okay, so here in these first, in verses 11 through 13, it's almost a parenthesis. So as you read verse 10, you'd be fine to read verse 10, then skip up to verse 14, because that's the Philippian church. But Paul's going to take this small little break to, to describe himself as the content person. So those of us who are followers in, of Jesus should really listen in and be challenged individually by how Paul describes himself, all right? So look with me, if you would, at verse 11 through 13. Paul writes, so, so he says, you guys had the opportunity, you met my needs, but, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, you feel the tension? You met my needs, but I am not in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul describes himself as a content person. He is a content individual, and he says that he has learned to be this person and the secret that it took to become that person. But the first thing he says is that he is a content person through every situation, through all circumstances, any and every circumstance in whatever situation, he says, I am to be content. Now, that's a bold statement, right? It's one thing to speak of contentment when we have plenty, right? It's one thing to speak of contentment when we live in abundance. In fact, most of us, if we were to describe a person who is content, that's how we would describe them, right? Someone who has plenty and lives in abundance. And Paul says that he has experienced those things, right? He says, I've had abundance. I have, I have abound. I, I have been in abund living in abundance. But where Paul, where is Paul right now when he writes this letter, what is Paul's current situation? He says, I've experienced the highs, I've experienced abundance, but where does he write right now? Prison. He's sitting in shackles. He, he can describe himself currently as in chains for Christ. Not figuratively, but in shackles right now. And, and we have to remember this as the context for this entire letter, for the entire letter. So when he says, rejoice always, he says that in shackles, in jail, currently. But especially in this passage, we have to remember that the context is him in chains. Do you see how this particular context actually demonstrates what Paul is teaching here? That he's saying, I can be content no matter my situation. Because friends, it's one thing, it's one thing to write about joy, satisfaction, and contentment if you're sitting in a hammock relaxing and napping on a beach, right? 
You could say, oh man, I'm so content right now. I am rejoicing right now. But it's a whole other thing to write about joy and contentment when you're in chains and in prison and totally unsure about what the future holds for you. Paul will suffer a martyr's death, perhaps shortly after this. And he says, I'm content. I'm content in, these in this situation. See, for Paul, his contentment was secure regardless of his circumstances. That's what he's saying here. Through every situation, it doesn't matter. There is no sentence, no way to complete the sentence, I am content unless, or I rejoice except when. For Paul, there is no unlesses or exceptions. There's just not. What Paul is saying is you can strip me down to nothing, take everything I have, or give me more than I have ever dreamed of having, and you have done absolutely nothing to affect what brings me joy. It doesn't matter. You can take it all or give me it all. It doesn't matter. You have done nothing to affect what brings me joy and makes me content. So friends, let me ask you, what about you? What limits your contentment? What boundaries have you placed on what brings you joy? I am content unless. Oh, I have joy except when. How do you limit it? What boundaries have you placed on it? What Paul is saying is he doesn't have any. Through every situation, he's content. The next thing he says, though, is that he has learned this contentment through learning everything. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. So this knowing that Paul has, it's not abstract. It's experiential. It's like it happened to me. I learned this. He has learned contentment through the pain of having nothing and through the temptation of having an abundance. He's experienced both and both have taught him to be content. And maybe more than any of this, maybe more than having and maybe more than going without has been the waiting, the anxiety of, of the unknown, of what happens next, God. Of what, am I gonna be in jail tomorrow? Am I gonna be floating out in the ocean tomorrow? Am I gonna be sitting before a feast tomorrow with my friends? What's next? And he says, all of this, all of this, rather than making him miserable or depressed or doubtful or afraid, it's actually been his teacher. He's, he's learned from all of it that he can be content. So how Paul, how Paul describes his learning is, is way less than like reading a textbook and feeling like you know something. Like, oh, I read that in a book, now I know. It's more like, it's more like a carpenter that has just finished building his thousandth house. And he says, I know how to build a house. Not because way back when he took classes and he read a book and he said, oh, now I know how to build a house. No, because he's already built a wall crooked and he had to tear it down and rebuild it. He had to tear up a foundation that he, he did wrong, laid wrong and tore it up and he had to redo it all over again. 
He knows how to build a house because he's built a thousand houses. That's what Paul is saying here. He is saying, I have learned to be content through what I've been through. And so Paul's learning has taught him to be content, not simply believe that he should be. You see the difference? He's not sitting in the jail thinking, man, I should really be content right now because I know that's the better decision. No, he's sitting there content because he's learned how to be content. That's the difference. But he earned his knowledge over a long period, a long period and a lot of trials, and it has left him utterly and completely content. And friends, let's be honest about contentment, right? Our ears as human beings perk up because every human being wants this. They want real contentment. Every human being wants actual joy. They want to be genuinely satisfied. And and this is one of the most universally shared desires among every red-blooded human being. All of us. Nobody wants to pretend to be happy when they know they aren't. Nobody. Nobody wants to fake being satisfied. Nobody wants a fictitious contentment. There is nobody that I I would pull anybody that would say, hey, you want to fake being happy your whole life? No. People want want contentment. They want real joy. All of us want the real thing. And we long for it. We long for it. And we'll seek it at all costs. We really will. We'll look for it in every place that you could possibly search for it. Whether it's jobs, it's money, it's friendships, it's relationships, all those different things. Maybe it's career, maybe it's kids, all those different things. We'll look all over the place, but we know, we know, or at the least, we secretly suspect that none of these things will actually bring the contentment we seek. We, we secretly think like, yeah, that actually kind of feels like a Band-Aid, kind of feels like it's making me happy right now, but what if it goes away? Is that really going to... Is that real contentment if it just goes away? I'm sad now? Is that real? But Paul says he has learned the secret of being content and satisfied and joyful in all situations, no matter the circumstances, a real, a real contentment. So your question's gotta be, right? Like he's doing it, he's building us to it on purpose. What is your secret? And that word, would have made everybody in this particular culture just just kind of freak out a little bit because he's taking, he's borrowing or stealing a term from the pagan religions. See, they would have offered a secret knowledge of eternity or into insights into God. And so Paul uses the word. He said, and everybody would have been like, you know that? They all know that. And they're like, no, they don't. No, they don't. I do. So all those self-help books, that you've partaken in and thought, hey, this will help, but then you got the 16-volume set and none of it left you content, Paul says, I know, I know, because I, I have the secret. I have the secret. And what is it? Simply put, it's what Paul's been describing this entire letter. It's knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Look at verse 13. I can do all of this through him who strengthens me, everything through Christ. I am the content person through Christ who provides strength. 
And there's some people in here right now I know that are disappointed, right? That's it? No, 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 no. Give me, give me the five steps, bro. Give me, the, give me the 10 keys to the contentment. That's cool. Knowing Jesus, I get that. Now provide me the practical steps that I can leave here with so I can start working towards contentment, right? All of us. Give me a book. Recommend a book real quick, preferably under 200 pages, so that I can gain this contentment that you've been talking about here. We want action steps, all of us, but Paul offers none because there are none, at least in the way that we want them provided for us. There's not step by step. You go and you learn and you draw closer to Jesus. And that, that's sobering, right? That's sobering because then when we get in the middle of a, a particular set of circumstances and we are discontent, it's not simply that we are doing the steps wrong. It's that we don't know Jesus like we should. We're very uncomfortable with that, right? We get in the middle of it and it's like, why am I so miserable? Why is my joy so affected by this? It can't be that I missed step five. It's that I don't know Jesus like I'm supposed to, like he has offered to make himself known. No matter his circumstances, Paul says knowing Jesus was enough for him and it left him content. But oh, we misuse this verse, don't we guys? We misuse this verse all the time. Oftentimes we use this verse in a way that is actually the opposite of how Paul is using it here. This is not the Christian way of saying you can do whatever you set your mind to, okay? This is not the Christian way of saying, hey, if you dream it, you can do it. That's not what he's saying here. Some even use it to hope for their circumstances to change. Like I go through a, a hard set of circumstances and I say, oh, I want them to be different. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. That is literally the opposite of what Paul is saying here. He is saying in no matter what the circumstances are, knowing Christ is enough to be content. That means, that means when the cancer comes, and you sit in the middle of that situation, terrified and fearful, but joyful and content. Or when the giant bonus check comes, bigger than you thought it would ever be, you sit in the middle of that situation, happy, but content. And then if you switch those two, and one happens to you and not the other one, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is, in the middle of that, Christ is enough. Some believe that the strength of Christ is offered to change the situation, but that's not true. Look at the author of this letter. He's sitting in jail as he writes it, and he's saying, I am content here, not I will be content if God changes this. That's what he's saying here. And so I want to ask this morning, if I could, first, if you're here this morning and, and maybe you're hearing this and it sounds so foreign to you, do, do you know this contentment that is found only in Christ? Have you learned it? Do you know it? And if you have not, if, if you're here and like, no, 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 dude, that sounds way, way out there, way different for me, can I be completely clear that it is readily available to you this morning? It, it, is, it is absolutely available to you right 
now. The work is done. God knows nothing apart from him will satisfy. Nothing. And so he came in the person of Jesus. He lived the righteous life that we cannot, that it was required of us died in our place at the cross for our shortcomings, raised from the dead, and now has offered us, offered us a knowledge of God, a relationship with God. The work is done. Everything we need to be satisfied is available in God. And everything we need in order to have a relationship with God is available to us in Christ right now. The work is done. It is not something that you need to work for or exhaust yourself in seeking after. The work is done. And so no matter who you are, no matter who you are this morning, you are invited to come and know Christ, to know all the blessings that are available in Christ, which Paul includes with knowing Christ, a deep, matchless, genuine contentment, a real one. A real one. Can you be honest with yourself this morning? I mean, I can't see you. I can't, I can't know your answers or know your life. I don't, I don't need to. Be honest with yourself. Can you, can you at bare minimum conf- confess this morning that that's something you want? You want contentment? You want joy? You want satisfaction? And can you go a step further? Maybe confess that the things you're searching for all of those things in, is gonna come up short sooner or later? Can you at least admit that? And perhaps, perhaps that even is what brought you here this morning. Maybe, maybe you're looking for joy. What a perfect message. Hear me say it as clearly and as plainly as I can. That joy that you're wanting, that satisfaction that you're hoping for is only available in Jesus, period. But what about the rest of you? If you have learned this contentment, not just believe that it's available, but know it, like Paul describes here. Can I ask you, do others see it in your life? Do they get to experience it when they're around you? Have you, been, have you demonstrated it to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates? Do they get to see it demonstrated for them? Or, or do they just see you seeking for contentment in all the places that they are? They see you laboring for more money, more prestige, working so hard for a degree like they are, believing that that's the thing that's going to satisfy. Friends, let me say, in our particular culture, this is one of the strongest, if not the strongest witness to Christ there is. A contentment, a satisfaction that is detached from our current situation and our current circumstances. Whether great or awful, doesn't matter. Whether easy or difficult, comfortable or painful, in all things we remain content because we know Christ. Not because we are so strong, but because there is a satisfying strength constantly, eternally in him. If Paul can declare in a jail cell, I'm sure that we can demonstrate in 21st century Davis, California, that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. But if Paul is our example in the, the content person, we switch now in verse 14 to the concerned church. If Paul 
challenged us individually and our contentment individually, the Philippian church challenges us corporately to be a church like them. They are held up as an example to us to be a local congregation like them. God uses concerned churches to meet the needs of content people. So God will use churches like the church in Philippi to meet the needs of someone like Paul. God uses concerned churches to advance the gospel. He always has and he always will. The local church, healthy local churches are Christ's plan for building his church. I want you to know that discovery. I want you to know that. And Paul is so clear right here that the Philippian church is an example of what this type of church will look like. So let's pay close attention because God's plan for reaching Davis, California is churches like Discovery Christian Church, period. He uses healthy churches to reach communities and places all over the world for the gospel. And I want you to know that. So the first thing that we see is that a concerned church is always willing to share. And I, and I stress always because I want you to notice how consistent they are. Watch how consistent they are. Look at verse 14. He says, And yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, Paul summarizes his entire ministry with just the phrase, the gospel. That's beautiful, right? His whole ministry is the gospel. When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, that's in Macedonia. So he's saying before I even got out of your area, he says, you sent me help for my needs once and again, consistently providing for my needs. And he says, we are always willing to share. Verse 14, when it says it was kind of you, if you're reading that in the ESV, that's not strong enough. I mean, that, I mean, it is kind, it was nice of them, but that really is something more along the lines of you did well or you did right. You did the right thing, local church at Philippi, in providing and sharing. The church does trouble. That's what he's saying is this is what a good church, this is what a healthy church does, is it partners with ministries and people like Paul regularly and consistently. But then he says, did you hear what he wrote? Except you only. No other church, except you only. That has to beg the question this morning, Discovery Church, are you willing to stand alone for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you willing? Now, that's not ideal. It would have been much more ideal if all the poor churches in Macedonia had partnered with Paul. Way more ideal. But even if they wouldn't, even if they couldn't, the church in Philippi did and kept and was consistently involved in Paul's ministry. Are you willing to be that consistently involved and supportive of gospel ministry? But you gotta ask the question why, right? What would possess this church who is obviously not materially well off, what possessed them to stand with Paul? Why? Why do that? What kind of people do that? Oh, you don't have very much, but... We're gonna send him money and stuff? Honestly, I, I don't think it's that complicated. I, 
See, they were saved through the preaching and the hearing of the gospel. That's what saved them. And they knew and they were convinced that others need to hear that gospel. And Paul needs support to go and preach the gospel. So, therefore, they're willing to sacrificially give for the sake of the gospel. That's why the gospel got a hold of their hearts. And they couldn't. They couldn't sit still while Paul was in need preaching the gospel. So they gave. Put bluntly, the Philippians are willing to play their role in seeing the gospel proclaimed. Are we? Are we? Are we willing to play whatever role God has for us, whether that be corporately as a church or individually as a person? And this is truly one of the clearest, surest pictures of a maturing church. One writer says it this way, one mark that believers are truly experiencing the shared blessings of the gospel is sacrificial generosity to advance it. Sacrificial generosity to advance it. It shows we believe the stuff we claim to believe. It's not enough to simply say, I believe the gospel, but it doesn't make its way out of our lives in any way. For them, for the church in Philippi, it was enough. The go- hearing the gospel saved them. Paul's preaching was what God used to save them. And they wanted more people to hear it. And their role could be, ah, oh, Paul needs stuff, dude. Send Paul some stuff. Send him some money. Send him some food. Send him some clothes. Send him Epaphroditus. Let him hang out with him so he's not lonely. Go and take care of his needs so that more people hear the gospel. Guys, that marks us that we truly believe what we claim to believe. But ultimately, their focus was not solely or even primarily on Paul or his ministry. And Paul wanted to keep it that way. He encourages them, keep it that way. And he reminds them what their gifts actually are, that their gifts are always pleasing to God. Look what he says next. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. There's that tension again. I didn't actually want it, but, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What Paul says there is, listen, my needs were met. Thank you. I mean, he doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say I'm grateful. Many commentators call this Paul's thankless thanks because he never says thank you. He doesn't. That's what is implied, but he never says He says, but I'm not asking it simply to meet my needs. I'm asking it because when when all is said and done and we all stand before Jesus, Jesus is going to look at you and say, look at all these people that got to hear the gospel because you provided for my guy's needs. You took care of him. And Paul says, I want that for you. That is to your credit. Paul is saying that the fruit that he is experiencing from his ministry in the gospel will be credited to them in eternity. It'll be theirs. Jesus used the phrase, right, all the time, treasures in heaven. This this mysterious phrase that we don't really know what that means or what that's gonna look like, right? Sometimes it's pictured as a crown, right? what, What does that mean? We don't know. But what we can know is that it is a reward, an eternal one that rust can't destroy, that thieves can't steal, 
right? That we can't lose, that won't break down, but it'll last for all eternity. Fruit that will last forever. Paul says, that's what your offerings are to me. That's what they are to me. This is the why behind their service to and their partnership with Paul is that God is glorified in it. And this is what all giving and all sacrifice must ultimately have in mind, church. Always, that we give not as simply to individuals, or I hear it all the time, I give offering at the church because we gotta keep the lights on. Yeah, but that's not why you give. You don't give to make sure missionaries are paid or they live a particular lifestyle or pastors. You don't give for those reasons. If you are, you're shortchanging the gift that you're giving. You lay all of that down at the feet of Jesus and say, I want to worship you. This is a a worship, a sacrifice, an offering to you. And that's what Paul is saying that they are getting right. A heart that wants and desires to bring glory to God through their giving. And lastly, Paul says, though, it comes full circle that a church that is always willing to share, always pleasing to God, is also always content in Christ. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need, there's that word all over again, every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See how that came back around? He says, yeah, you're a poor, impoverished church that gave generously. Don't worry. God is going to take care of your needs. God is going to take care of your needs. Every one of their needs will be met according to everything that is available in Christ. Now listen, not just any needs, right? We got to think about who Paul is. He's not saying, oh man, you guys will get rich because that's what you need to be. That's not what Paul's perspective is at all. He's saying every need that you have, to continue glorifying God in gospel ministry will be met in Christ, and you can count on it. There is no way a church like Philippi would ever cease to exist in Paul's mind because every one of their needs is going to be met as long as their eyes are fixed on the gospel. Paul is essentially here teaching the same principle that Jesus himself taught in Matthew 6, right? That Jesus said, people who don't know God, they seek after food and clothing and possession, and they seek security and peace and contentment in those things. Jesus said, not you, not you. You seek after my kingdom first. You seek after my ways first, and all of your basic needs, they'll be met, but seek me first. Trust me more, but why? Here's the big dominant question to me. See, because Paul's about to end his letter. Look look at verse 21. Skip 20, look at 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, even those, especially those of Caesar's household. He's not shutting up about the gospel. People are getting saved even while he's in jail. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He's about to end his letter, but he hasn't really answered us yet. Why? Why does he, why does he keep encouraging this church to give? Why? And, and I think it's contained right there in that small little phrase in verse 20. Look at verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
I think that's why. I think we should seek to be the content person and the concerned church all for the glory of God. I think that's the end all. I think with our eyes fixed on that and all that we do as an individual and all that we do corporately as a church, I think that's what what the end game is. For Paul, this is the conclusion he's been working through through the entire letter. This has been his prayer for the church all along, that they would be a church who is dead set on bringing glory to God. It, It has been his end goal, his purpose, his focus, his desire for his friends in this local church at Philippi, that they would glorify God. But But not only has he been concerned with God being glorified, but also with the Philippians' joy, right? You've seen that over and over again. If if I'm saying the glory of God was the end of this letter, the conclusion he's been working towards, but all along he's been lacing through, speaking to them about their joy. He's been exemplifying and promising them joy He promises them here contentment and satisfaction in the passage we just read. I think the conclusion we must come to is that these two things, the glory of God and us being satisfied, those two things actually aren't in conflict with one another. They're not at odds, and I don't think we need to choose. We're required to choose one or the other. God being glorified or us being content. I think That's what Paul's teaching here, is those two things go together. I think God being glorified is more intimately connected to our contentment than we ever actually realized. And perhaps the modern day pastor, author, John Piper was not all that original in his conclusion that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I don't don't think he came up with that on his own. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Yours, according to his rent, I don't need anything. And he can say, my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I, I think he's saying both of those two things go hand in hand. So I wanna close our time by simply praying Paul's prayer over the Philippian church that he prayed in the very beginning of his letter, which ties, I think, these two themes together well. And can I invite you, would you guys stand as I, as I read this over, to you, over you, if you don't mind? And this is, this is my prayer for you guys as a church. As, as, as you seek Jesus and in whatever it is that God has for you guys as a ministry here in this community, This is my prayer for you guys. If you would, bow your heads with me. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you 
all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer. Father, I pray for Discovery Church that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and, Lord, with all discernment. I pray that for them so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day when Jesus comes back for his bride. I pray that you would fill them with the fruit of righteousness that comes through knowing Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In Jesus' name, amen.